When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. It's episode 40. Whoa, we old. It's like, it's kind of wild to put in the perspective of we've been doing this for 40 weeks. That's a lot of weeks. 40 days and 40 nights, baby. And then looking at my stats on Letterboxd where we average like five and a half movies a week. <laughs> I showed that to some coworkers just this past week and they were like, holy shit, I maybe watched that many movies in a year. <laughs> yeah. One of my students asked a few weeks ago, how many movies do you think you watch in a week? And I was like, oh, like between five and eight, some weeks more, almost never less. Yeah. And then this like chorus of how do you get our marking done? Like, how do you have a life? And I'm like, they're like, do you mark while you watch movies? And I'm like, no, never. Dream on. I bring marking to the movie theater, little book light. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. I love it. And it's uh, it's a passion of ours, which will tie into one of the movies that we watched this week about chasing a passion that we both share. We'll get there. Oh, uh, I was like. I have no idea. <laughs> trying to get you there. Got you there. Got me there. Okay. Yeah. So we watched six Mocaroonies. So this might be a long episode. So strap in because it's going to be really fun. So we actually bookended our week with two movies from 1988 unintentionally. But the first one was 1988's animation adventure comedy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? No question mark on that because Robert Zemeckis, the director, said that, <laughs> what did he say? People don't like titles with question no, marks he said something about he felt like movies with question marks don't do as well don't do well in the box office all right what's eating gilbert great so yeah directed by robert zemeckis written by gary k wolf who wrote the novel i did not realize this was based on a novel called who censored roger rabbit screenplay was by jeffrey price and peter s seaman <laughs> um <clears throat> and it stars Bob Hoskins as Eddie Valiant, 
Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom, Joanna Cassidy as Dolores, uh, Charles Fleischer as Roger Rabbit, and Stubby K as Marvin Acme. The synopsis is a toon-hating detective is a cartoon rabbit's only hope to prove his innocence when he is accused of murder. Uh, what do you think of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Okay, this is the moment I probably get canceled, but I do not like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever like it? Mm, I've seen it. Mm-hmm. But I I have to assume I didn't like it even as a kid because I didn't watch it repeatedly. Right. And as I have done my entire life, if I love something, I become obsessed with it. And I will watch it again and again and again and again until I wear it out. Mm-hmm. Um, Likewise. So I don't, I don't think I cared for it much as a kid. I feel like my dad liked it. Mm. And so that's why I saw it. And then I never chose to pick it up on my own. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, a day was going to come when we'd get canceled or I'd <laughs> get canceled. And this is probably it. I don't like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. What is it you don't like about it? I don't understand who it's for. I, you asked that question while we were watching it. And I cannot answer that question. Because <laughs> like, yeah, it it is... Definitely kind of kids leaning, but I think that family film is what kind of encompasses it. But it's also, it's a little bit darker than a family film in some ways. Yes, like this is where I struggle because the more adult aspects or the aspects that might appeal to someone older, I thought they were boring. Like the mm. noir mystery. And part of that is I just like don't care for hard boiled detective right. stuff. Like aside from this film, that is not a genre I would choose to watch on my own. Right. Yeah. Um, unless it's being heralded as like a new approach. Mm-hmm. Like in um Into the Spider-Verse, I don't care for Nick Cage's Spider-Man. Right. I but just, you like Knives Out. Enough. Okay. <laughs> I don't love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that part I just found boring. And then I thought Roger was the most annoying character I've ever seen on anything ever. So the the parts that might appeal to kids just drove me batty. And the parts that might appeal to adults made me fall asleep. Right. So I, <laughs> my question for you is, as a kid, what did you like about this? So, yeah, for, for me, this was a childhood staple. This was one of the ones, like you were kind of saying, when you love it. You, when you love something, you just kind of watch it mm-hmm. on repeat. That was this for me. Mm-hmm. I watched it a ton as a kid. Um, I mean, I love that it was like fun and wacky, but it had a darkness to it. It's and I mean, this is not what did it for me, but this movie is also extremely horny. Yeah, it <laughs> it is, which adds to the confusion of who this is for. Yeah, like I I, I don't know at what point in my life, but at a certain point in my life. I want to say maybe in high school, I like just found Jessica Rabbit inappropriate. Like I found the fact that she was drawn in that way, depicted in that way, like upsetting. Right. And like when you put this on, I was like, oh, is this going to be like a profoundly problematic film? And, you know, by and large, I do not think so. Mm -hmm. But I do find that like overt sexualization of her. Like there's, um, I was looking at the trivia. I gave up looking at the trivia because there's a lot of it. And and I just... (laughs) care Mm -hmm. but one of the things i saw is that um bob hoskins 
he was like, what's Jessica Rabbit going to look like? And Robert Zemeckis said, imagine your ideal sexual fantasy, oh, which like, that's gross. That is gross. I hate Especially, that. Especially like, if this is a family film, that's gross. And then Hoskins claims what he imagined was less risque than what is on the screen. Oh, bless his heart. All right. <laughs> so, um. yeah, that's and also adding like speaking to the question of who is this for? I also read that the first test screenings were with audiences of all 18 and 19 year olds and they hated it. And like they, many of them were like walking out and Zemeckis was like, I have final cut and I'm not changing a thing. And I mean, obviously it's worked out because l- many people love this movie, including you. Yeah. But it just does not work for me. I didn't know all this stuff about Zemeckis. He sounds like a real penis pincher. I don't like him at all. Um. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> take this with a grain of salt. It's IMDb trivia. <laughs> well, still, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I think a big, I mean, I would say probably the biggest reason that I liked it as a kid was just this is an IP smorgasbord. And mm. it, there's a lot to love here if you love cartoons, which I did as a kid. I mean, especially Looney Tunes who are here. But I wanted to just kind of a bit of a tangent because I was just curious and I think it'd be fun to share. What was your Saturday morning cartoon lineup? Because for me, it was like Saturday morning hits. You're sitting down with your cereal. (laughs) It was like a couple hours of Bugs Bunny and Tweety show. Batman, the animated series, who also rest in peace, Kevin Conroy, that he passed away recently. And he's like my voice of Batman. That hit me kind of hard. Recess, Rugrats show called what a mess Rocco's modern life and then there's a bunch of movie tie-in stuff like they had a free willy show dumb and dumber show the mask <laughs> show basically any jim carrey movie they turned into a, a cartoon property what about for you what were your saturday morning cartoons so this is one of the moments where our different upbringings start to clash in that i have three siblings two who are older one three years older one six years older and mm-hmm. one who's four years younger trying to get us all to agree on something to watch on the one TV. Almost impossible. So I actually don't have very clear memories of watching Saturday morning cartoons until I was like nine or ten and we had moved into a bigger house where Mm. we had more than one TV. Right. Um, And at that point, I'm like later elementary, I remember liking Weekenders, Recess, um, like Doug, Pepper Ann, like that kind of stuff. More of the like teenager stuff or like junior high kid stuff. I did. I I always liked Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy, Rocco's Modern Life, but I don't, Cat Dog. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't have a distinct memory of like Saturday morning lineup. Oh, okay. Um, In terms of when I was younger, cartoons I liked were more like Flintstones, Jetsons. Mm. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Flintstone. Were you more of a Flintstones person? Yeah. Yep. Or, yeah. yeah. Me too. I would watch Jetsons because I think Flintstones was on first. Checks out timeline wise. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then I would just usually continue. So I watched a lot more of that. And there was a, um, a video, like a VHS tape that we had called, I think it's 50 of the world's greatest cartoons or mm. something like that. And we watched yeah. that a lot. And that was like Betty Boop and Little Lulu and like so more older stuff. Like I wasn't really right. into the I, I liked um Roadrunner. Yeah. But I wasn't super into Looney Tunes as a whole. Like it was I can see that, especially since you don't like the character of Roger Rabbit. Like <laughs> Looney Tunes can get very much like that. 
Although Bugs Bunny kind of seems like my personality. (laughs) Maybe that's why you like me. You just reminded me too. I definitely had a lot of VHS tapes. So I had, this is very cute. My, my mom and dad, I, I don't know if they did it for me or if they just did it, but they had tapes where they had taped a bunch of episodes of Batman, the animated series and a bunch of, Looney Tunes stuff. And then we had a bunch of Looney Tunes compilations and stuff like that. So there's some episodes of Looney Tunes I've seen a lot because I would just watch those tapes on repeat and watch those episodes on repeat. But same as you, I did have some older stuff too. Like I remember watching some Popeye, watching some Betty Boop, watching some of the the older uh, cartoons as well. Yeah, that was more more what I watched. Um, I wouldn't say I never watched Looney Tunes, but it was... Yeah, I think Flintstones is the thing I watched the most. I loved Flintstones. Yeah. I used to... Did you ever have the like Flintstones? They were like ice cream, like cylinders, like push pops almost with yep. like a really like a stick that's too small and you try to push it and it would like want to go through your hand. I loved those. Those were so good. You know what my favorite thing about the Flintstones was? Yeah. Yeah, all of the all of the animals that would that's or all of the it's dinosaurs. A job. <laughs> it's eleven. I think that speaks to just even my sense of humor and what I like now is Flintstones was clever. Yeah, and also like we liked the bowling. Right, my grandparents owned a bowling alley growing up. My parents met in a bowling alley. Like bowling was a part of our family, and I think you know Fred being a bowler. I liked Pebbles and Bam Bam, you know, like it was just yeah. it was um, fun. Last question before we get back to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Did you have a go-to favorite cereal when you were a kid? I really liked Trix, but my mom wouldn't buy it. So it was like a, a super treat. It was at grandma's house. Oh. She also had this cereal. I don't know what it, the name of it is. Um, I feel like the box was green and they don't make it anymore, but it tasted like Rice Krispie Squares. Like marshmallow. Oh. Rice. Like it was um I don't know what it was called. If someone knows what that was called, it was really good. Yeah, I don't know. Um interesting. But I also don't think we ate a lot of cereal. Before mm. my parents separated, they were very and they separated when I was twelve. They were very particular about like not having candy and junk food and pop and mm. if we watched something, we watched it as a family and Right. Um, the thing I watched the most on my own, which was not a Saturday morning cartoon, was Sailor Moon. Hmm. And then my sisters wanted to watch SNL or Days of Our Lives. And then we would fight over the TV. Yeah. Boo. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, there was a, I went through a lot of rotation. I was kind of the opposite. We had a lot of fun food at my house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, checks out. <laughs> um, yeah. It, there was like a pretty steady rotation of what I was into. Like it would be Count Chocula. It would be Apple Jacks. It would be... I don't like the ones that turn the cereal into cool. like a chocolate milk. Oh, Golden Grams. I like Golden Grams. Um, Frosted Flakes. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I know we have to get back to Roger Rabbit, but you have a younger sister. Yeah, I do. Did you not fight over the TV? Not really. And also I was privileged enough to have a TV in my room at a pretty young age. When you were a child? Pretty young, yeah. Oh. So I could always just... With retreat. cable? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I wow. Think, I think so. But I think I also had a VCR, so I mostly just watched like movies and stuff. No, but in terms of Saturday morning cartoons, would your sister just watch what you were watching? Yeah. That's kind of that was kind of the the thing in my house is we had a living room with one TV and everyone would just kind of pass through and watch whatever somebody was watching. There wasn't mm. a lot of fighting over what was going on. It was kind of well, you know, so I did witness this when we started dating. We were 19 and and you were still living at home. It seemed like the dynamic was whoever got to the TV first got to choose and then other people if they wanted to watch could join or if they weren't interested could pass on through. Yeah. Cuz like I think we many a time your sister would be watching like a movie that maybe we wouldn't have picked but she was watching it so we just sat down and watched it with her or mm-hmm. like you know like just sit down and watch the news because your mom started the news like yeah whereas the dynamic in our house was i don't want to watch that no get you've had the tv too long <laughs> like, <laughs> right right that kind of thing yeah yeah it's it's interesting to think about yeah that, like i don't feel like there was a lot of bickering over the tv and like if somebody wanted the tv like if i wanted it to play video games or if i was having friends over i would usually just ask and it wouldn't be a problem but you only had one person one child that you were like I had three. Yeah. Yeah. We also fought over the computer. Uh, Yeah. So the computer was the same way. Like, it was just kind of like, oh, somebody's using it? Okay, I'll just hop on it later. Well. <sighs> I don't know anyway, Roger Rabbit's annoying. Ro- Ro- <laughs> Roger Rabbit. Well, I mean, stating the obvious about what is incredible about this movie is just like it's a technical marvel. Yeah, it's, it is really impressive. I re- So this was a cool piece of trivia I read instead of kind of an annoying one. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've seen this movie a lot. Yeah. There's a part of the movie where the character of Eddie takes Roger into a back room and there's a lamp in the ceiling that Roger bumps. Yeah. And the lamp is swinging. And apparently there it was like an incredibly intensive, intense amount of labor that had to go to making the shadows match between the room and the animation. Right. And they could have just not had the lamp be bumped. Yeah. And so to this day, bump the lamp is a term used in Disney to refer to going an extra mile on an effect to make it more special, even knowing most audience members won't notice it. That's that's gorgeous. Bump the lamp. I think that's well, cool. It's just like a scene that sticks out for me is the scene where um, the weasels come to Eddie's apartment and Eddie's doing dishes. But the weasels come in and are like holding real guns to him. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you look at there's behind the scenes footage of it, they're just guns on like strings that they're puppeting because <laughs> nobody's holding the gun because <laughs> it's a cartoon character. Yeah. It's just like those little things where you don't really think about it, but then after the fact, you're like, oh, yeah, they're holding tangible real things or interacting with tangible real things. And they didn't have to do that. They could have gone fully animated. I think I could see how, as a as a child, that bringing of the animated world into the real world would be really cool. They do that really well in this. Like the fact that Toontown is a place that exists within our world that people can go to and tunes can come out of it. And yes. It, yeah. I think Toontown, that's cool. Toontown, like when they actually go to Toontown, that is my nightmare. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm silly to a limit. And then silly that silly shuts right off. I have like a silly faucet and it's on or it's off and there's no in between. <laughs> That's the name of your autobiography. Silly to a limit. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I remember too, a long time ago, 
because I was a big nerd when I was even a little kid and I'd watch like behind the scenes stuff on movies <laughs> I liked. You're just a little adult. Yeah. Um, but I remember seeing an interview with Bob Hoskins where he was talking about if he grabbed Roger Rabbit with his fingers splayed, he just cost the studio thousands of dollars because now they have to draw in Roger in between all of his fingers. Mm. So he had to be conscious to like keep his fingers closed so that they wouldn't have to draw anything in between his the gaps in his fingers. Mm. Which is just like wild to think about as an actor who is in this very innovative movie where most of his co-stars don't exist and he's playing off of nothing and he has to remember to not hold things certain ways or interact with things certain ways in order to not cost the studio thousands of dollars. Dollars. And I mean, in that regard, it's impressive and easy to take for granted because so much of film now is CG. Yeah. And so we are used to actors acting opposite nothing. Yeah. Right. But at this time, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you know more of the history of special effects moving into like the digital realm than I do. But I feel like, you know, late 80s and prior, it was more practical effects. So you were still acting opposite something. Yeah. And the way that it would look. So, you know, and that this is one of those things where weird to make this comparison, but I kind of feel about this film the way I feel about like Breaking Bad. I don't like Breaking Bad, but I understand that it is objectively good. Right. And I feel that way about this. Like just Who Framed Roger Rabbit is not for me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't date Jessica or Roger. Would you date Eddie? No. Okay. <laughs> He's a mope. Is a mope. Um, yeah. Do you know what's funny though is as uh, as we were watching it, the things that were bugging you about Roger are the things that I saw a lot of myself in Roger. I think I said that I'm like you're Roger Rabbit, <laughs> as I've already said. He's the most annoying character ever. <laughs> but Roger's only that. Yeah, he leans he leans more HD on the ADHD spectrum. I think. And you're more AD. More AD. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can. <laughs> You can be like Roger, but it's not all the time. But when you do get in a Roger Rabbit mood and you don't know how to shut it off. You're just living with a cartoon. And I get pretty frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> um, other interesting uh, piece of trivia for you here. Disney and Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers only agreed. Wait, who made this movie? Touchstone. I so think. who did they? Were they a Disney or Warner Brothers? One of them was their property. I think Touchstone belongs to Disney. Okay, so whichever one it was, the other company only agreed to allow their properties to be used if they had equal screen time. It's like 50-50 equal screen time with the other property. Mm. And that's why all of the iconic characters appear in duos. Clever. So you have like a Donald Donald Duck and a Daffy Daffy Duck. Duck so that there could be no misrepresenting that it's 50-50 screen time. And... Unless IMDb Trivia is wrong, to this day, this is the only property that contains both Warner Brother and Disney characters. Well, it's insane. Like, I, I feel like the only thing that kind of comes close to this would be, and I, I haven't seen it, would be like a uh, the new Space Jam movie or even uh, like Ready Player One. But that's all like one property. Like, that's all Warner um, Brothers IP. I'm going to say, and, and it is another, it's all Disney IP. But Wreck It Ralph, Wreck It Ralph Two, mm. does that kind of cool? Isn't there a bunch of even the original Wreck It Ralph where you've got all of these like 
you've got Bowser and you've got Pac-Man and you've got Qbert and you've got, you know, which is to an extent um, what, you know, Marvel's trying to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was is very cool. A couple more thoughts on this for me is just, I love Bob Hoskins in this. Like, I think that he does a great job and I, I think that he 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 reminded me a lot of my grandpa when I was little because mm-hmm. he kind of looks like him. Mm-hmm. Like his, I can see that his mannerisms aren't like that, but like just his nose and his face like look a lot like my grandpa who passed away a long time ago. So he always kind of reminded me of him. Um, the we I think the weirdest thing about this was that I, as soon as Jessica Rabbit came on the screen and started talking. I, I had never thought about who did her voice, but as soon as I heard her talk, I'm like, oh, that's Kathleen Turner, of mm-hmm. course. So the credits start rolling, and she's not there. She's not credited at all in this movie, and I guess it's just because she was kind of doing it as like a favor, or she just wanted to do it because Robert Zemeckis asked her to do it. Was it him that asked her to do it? I don't know. It still seems strange to not give her credit for it. Like, yeah. It's such Jessica Rabbit, while I am not a fan, um, is a very iconic character to a lot of people and it's not just the way she looks it is very much her voice yeah it's that smoky sultry jazz singer kind of voice right and to not have her get any credit for that and the person who's credited i believe is who like her body is based on like her body model oh weird which is also kind of icky yeah, I don't know. But Kathleen Turner does her voice and she does a great job with the voice work. Um, I do have to say where I began to like this movie was like the last 20 minutes. Right. When it leans hard into the kinds of movies I liked as a kid, which were horror for kids. Right. You know, I liked yeah. Tim Burton movies and um, like now and then and just things that had a darkness to them that were still appropriate enough for someone my age yeah that kind of spurned me into darker spurn that's a weird word but it kind of eventually grew into me liking darker dramas and full-on horror and these were kind of the seeds of them so the last 20 minutes of that of this film is quite scary oh there's a character quite upsetting there's a character in the last in in the last act of this movie that scared the piss out of me and i I and i really liked that part of it but the it didn't to me justify the rest of the film the mystery aspect of it and the like hard-boiled film noir detective part just it's just not a genre i'm into no that's fair yeah all right i prefer a goofy movie (laughs) love a goofy movie um how did who framed roger rabbit make you feel i feel bad about this i understand i might lose some folks here but it made me feel bored. No, oh. to be honest. All right. Alternatedly, al- alter- alternatingly bored and annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a good time watching this. Oh, it was a riot. Um, How does it make you feel? Uh, I mean, just like nostalgic as hell, but it also it it, it makes me feel very joyful. I still like mm. get a lot of joy out of this movie, and it just puts me right back in a, like a place of that place of nostalgia. And like, I remember sitting on the floor looking up mm. at my TV and watching this as a kid um, and, and just loving it. So it just kind of takes me right back there I, as an adult. I see where things fall through the cracks and things that I don't like or are potentially pro- problematic. 
I can see all of those things and it's by no means a perfect movie, but it always just kind of holds a special place in my heart. It it makes me a little sad that I can't share in that joy with you. Like, like I have when you like sh- showed me little shop of horrors. So I just think in future, this is one for you to revisit on your own. Gladly. Yeah. Maybe on like a sick day or something when I need a little, little boost, I'll throw it on. <laughs> perfect. Okay. What's the next one? Different direction. Yeah. Um, I picked Celine Sciamma's first film ever because we quite like her and we're on a journey of watching her films. And that film is called Water Lilies. It came out in 2007. It's a drama slash romance, apparently, but the romance part of it's pretty sad and Ooh. hard and classic icky. Celine. Classic Celine. Um, so she wrote and directed it, Celine Sciamma, and it stars Pauline Ecoir as Marie. Louise Blacher as Anne, Adele Hanel as Florian, and Warren Jacquin as Francois. Uh, the synopsis for this one is, after meeting at a local pool over their summer break, a love triangle forms between three adolescent girls, which proves difficult to sustain as they each desire the love of another. Yeah. Which is a very correct synopsis. The difficult to sustain part is really... I think at the heart of this film. So neither of us had seen this. Um, it's on Criterion Channel. What did you think of Water Lilies? Celine Sciamma's storytelling is my jam. Mm-hmm. Like she knows how to tell a super intimate and personal and sad mm-hmm. story. And she knows how to structure it. She knows how to frame it um, and how to pace it. That it just very slowly... Mm-hmm. rips your heart out. Yeah, she has a rhythm to her films that is both lingering and intense. Yeah. Where yeah. it's slow, but there's tension throughout it. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to to be visiting first films like we did last week with Blood Simple mm-hmm. and now with Water Lilies and see... By no means is Water Lilies my favorite of the Celine Sciamma films. Mm-hmm. Like um, Petite Mama is for sure my favorite of what I've seen. And, you know, I love Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I have a feeling I'm going to like it even more on a rewatch. Yeah. Like I have a feeling it might catapult to a, I kind of was at the 4.5 range for it, but I think in a different frame of mind, it would be a five. Mm. Um, but you see where those impulses that are in her films now are already there from the beginning and you see that rhythm and you see that thematic and emotional thread that is the heart of her films i feel like um in this one yeah she she has a really great command over just like complex emotions um and like she writes she writes characters, but I feel like she writes female characters really, really well. Mm-hmm. Like she just, and I, it feels almost whether or not it's true. It feels like she goes to a really personal place. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know much about her or, or, or her background or her history or anything like that, but it just feels like she's just burying her soul in all of her work. Yeah. And in this one, it's like the, the, what she was maybe experiencing as a younger person or what she sees younger people, younger queer people experiencing. It's it's so interesting, though, because there is a degree to which this film, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, to me really captured 
that feeling of being in like late elementary, early junior high and having a crush on someone who is a real person who like goes to your school or, you know, through a community, like a sport or something like that. Mm-hmm. But you don't really know them. Yeah. And yet you feel like it's possible and you doubt every aspect of yourself and you want this thing to happen, but you don't know that person at all. It's a very particular, have you ever had that? Oh yeah. It's like, it's the like pining adolescence. It's, it's but you're like, not pining after some celebrity. It's a real person. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and it's just like the, it, it is this like really weird thing. Cause I remember I went to a, in junior high, I went to a basketball tournament and I saw this girl from across, <laughs> across the oh, court, wow. across the court, across the court. That's the name of your biography. And like, I saw her and we locked eyes and then we kept playing the shy game where we're like, we like look away, but then we catch eyes again and we look away. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm just like, oh, I'm like, I like nudge my buddy. I'm like, who's that? <laughs> this sounds like a, a sitcom episode. Um, and I remember kind of f- figuring out who she was, finding her and messaging her on like MSN Messenger. <laughs> and we started like a bit of a dialogue. We never ended up dating or anything like that. But like, because I think I found out she had like a boyfriend and stuff. But like, find, but finding that out, it's like immense disappointment. Because yeah. you just, when you're that young, you see somebody that you think like, oh man, simpatico. <laughs> and That's- then you're totally crushed and hurt and just and then that relating back to this movie it's just the tragedy of that falling apart there's also like a a really you know looking at it from a you know 30 year old perspective Mm -hmm. there's a desperation involved in it that is both really sad and like also kind of embarrassing and at times dangerous yeah like the degree to which at that particular time, and I think it's different than when you're in high school. Yeah. It's more in that like junior high and even younger range to which you attach these feelings to someone that you don't know at all. Yeah. And the things you might do to see that come to fruition can be really embarrassing. Yeah. Really shameful. Like in an in- not in an objective sense, but in an internal sense. And I think can really emotionally stick in a way that can be really dark. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I, I talked a little bit about this on our Daddy Deep Dive episode of After Sun, but I still very much as an adult struggle with when I'm in a big social situation, it's really important to me almost to a fault that I come across as the version of myself that mm. it is whoever whatever it needs to be for that audience so it needs to be really cool it needs to be really intellectual it needs to be really professional whatever that is and i'll get so in my head and internalize so much about it that i i will just end up kind of stepping back and like barely saying anything because i'm so self-conscious about it in this respect it's like when especially when you're especially when you're a kid like junior high age um going into into high school so like that kind of stage of adolescence you're so hyper aware of yourself and like not wanting to come across as dumb or come mm-hmm. across as uncool or any of those things. Um, but like, it's like 
times that by a million. Mm-hmm. You're so self-conscious about yourself and how you're being presented and how you're coming across. And you and if there's somebody that you like or you you would like to, I don't know, date, kiss, or whatever, it's it's really scary and it's hard to put yourself out there and mm-hmm. it can be so obliterating if that's not reciprocated on this person that you potentially don't know or, or- reciprocated in a a way that wasn't what you envisioned. Yeah. Right. Like, which to me had some real links with normal people, which mm-hmm. that's looking more at high school mm-hmm. when perhaps some of these folks should know better. Um, yeah. I don't know. It was, there was a particular, like it, this is a queer film, but there was a degree to which I think that feeling is relatable to probably most anyone who has lived through adolescence. Yeah. Did this film make you want to synchronize dance or synchronize swim? I thought it was all the synchronized swimming stuff was super cool. And I, I love, I loved all the camera work around it. And I don't know. Anytime I've watched synchronized swimming, I'm like, that's fucking impressive. I think that's amazing. Do I want to do it? <laughs> Pass. I'm looking for the thing that finally makes you be like, yeah, I'm going to take swimming lessons. I guess this what? wasn't it. No. Darn. I'll, the- I'll enroll you in synchronized swimming. Is there male synchronized swimming? I don't know if I've ever seen male synchronized swimming. What about co-ed? Swimming. Ooh, where it ends in like a kiss. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, just where gender it doesn't matter. Yeah, I guess that it doesn't need to be co-ed for there to end for it to end with a kiss. Yeah. Hey, who are you? Yeah. Pff, look at me, Mr. Binary over here. <laughs> God. I'm looking it up. Synchronized swimming, Edmonton. Oh yeah, you can sign me up. Yeah. I won't be very. Do you want to be part of XL or the Orcas? Is there a synchronized swimming in the shallow end? <laughs> <laughs> for someone who's six foot three, I think that's dangerous. <laughs> oh man, personally. Put me in a class with like a bunch of kids where I really stick out like a sore thumb. Well, the Edmonton orcas look like they're all girls and like little girls. Not, <laughs> no, so not the place for me. No, I don't think so. Boo his. Oh, yeah. So is this one. Uh, interesting. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen, unfortunately. Um, but I'll keep looking. Thank you. For you. Yeah. I, I was really impressed with the three leads here like the three um young women who played uh, marianne and florian and adele hanel of course has gone on to continue to work with celine scama and is just a phenomenal actress i really liked pauline acquire as marie and i'm sad she hasn't been in as much like mm-hmm. this is an older film but I was just really impressed with the three of them. And they were all, I think, fairly young when they made this movie. And mm-hmm. obviously, Celine Scamma's first film. There's just so much um, there in this first film that you can see has just been refined and expanded. But the heart of what's going on here is still the heart of what Celine Scamma does, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. No big time. I was just kind of thinking too while we were talking, like going back to the the synchronized swimming, like it, it it's a really great device to show because it's really put on display just how in sync synchronized mm-hmm. swimming everybody needs to be for those performances and how much work and craft goes into those things of everybody being synchronized in that, but then how out of sync 
everything is in their personal lives Mm -hmm. and how everything kind of can spiral and not be perfect. And sometimes no matter how much you try or how much you work on something, it isn't perfect. I like that as kind of like contrast point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, I thought, I mean, this is a great first film Mm -hmm. and like what a great, I mean, we can say this now, but what a great taste of what's, what was to come from Mm -hmm. Celine's gamma and, uh, yeah. I guess that's why it's on Criterion Channel. Yeah. Uh, how did Water Lilies make you feel? It made me feel a, like it made me feel downhearted and empathetic. Like I could as per the conversation we just had, I've totally had that that feeling and that pining in my adolescence for somebody who <laughs> may or may not have reciprocated that and just like how crushing that is. So I I, I felt for our characters in this. Will you? That make you feel? Yeah, it made me feel heavy-hearted. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. It was just, it was heavy. Yeah. In a way, and and in one of those ways where it's like, I am glad I am not there anymore. But also, you know, we have young people in our lives, in our families, where I'm like, whew, some of them are starting to reach this age, and just that empathy of how tough of a time this is, and really, no one can navigate it but yourself. Yeah. And just keeping that in mind as the young people around us start to encounter stuff like this. Yeah. I'm, oh man, a little nibblings. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know. They're Growing not going to so hit them. Friggin' hard. Mm-hmm. We beat adults hard too, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's go to the movie theater. So, oh, right now? Uh, hold, hold on, your, hold on your horses. We got to get through this one first. <laughs> Uh, so we did go to the movie theater and we saw the 2022 drama horror romance bones and all. It was directed by Luca Guada Guadagnino and written by David Kaj Kaj Ganich. I'm so sorry. Who wrote the screenplay and Camille DeAngelis who wrote the novel. It stars Taylor Russell as Marin, the boy himself, Timothy Chalamet as Lee Mark Rylance as Sully, uh, Andre Holland as Marin's father, and Anna Cobb as Kayla. The synopsis is Marin, a young woman, learns how to survive on the margins of society. I love that synopsis. I do too, because I was really nervous because there's an aspect of this film that we knew going into it, which I feel is pretty evident in the trailer. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I want to be careful about talking about it because I, if you don't know what it is, oh boy. I have heard, though, that folks have gone in not knowing what it is, particularly folks who love Timothy Chalamet and then have walked out. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Because it's pretty upsetting. Yeah. And the boy doesn't come in for a while. The boy does not come in for a while. So it's like, I haven't even seen Timmy. <laughs> and this stuff's happening. Where's the beautiful boy? <laughs> Was he in a movie called Beautiful Boy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if he was the titular Beautiful Boy. I think he was the titular Beautiful Boy, yeah. (sighs) Wonderful. What do you think of Bones and All? So, an interesting aspect of us choosing to see this movie, to me, is that right now there's a lot of choice of what to see at, like, the multiplex. Like, whatever. Well, like, for us, it's Cineplex, but not everywhere is it Cineplex? Like some folks, it's Landmark. And those of you from the States. Even got a friendly little listener in Australia. What do you got there? Yeah. Where are you going to see movies there? Somebody in Australia has been catching up with us. What, what's your multiplex called? 
Yeah. DM us, baddad.raddad at Instagram. Would love to know. But where, whatever multiplex you have that brings like the more recent movies, mm-hmm. like the ones that are trying to do real well in the box office. Yeah. Like not your local indie theater. Although they get some great ones too. Usually better ones. There's a lot of choice right now, right? So we're looking and there's Fablemans and Glass Onion and Strange World and Bones and All and She, she said, said and um, what did we see last week? Oh, Banshees of Inishirin, right? Like there's a lot of choice right now. And I don't want to, I do want to see all of these things, but I don't necessarily need to see all of them right now. Mm-hmm. And when we looked at all of that, Bones and All was the one we chose to go see, mm-hmm. which I don't think was the most popular choice as our opening night. We went to an advanced screening. Mm-hmm. Our opening night theater only had six other people in it. Yeah. Six very respectful people. Yeah. I have to say, in contrast to all of the complaining from last week, this was one of the best movie theater experiences I've had. So I, I'm assuming that everyone who came knew what they were getting themselves into. Mm-hmm. And we're excited to see it, hence going on a Wednesday advanced screening. But that's just it. To what you said earlier, had we gone on like a Friday, we might have been having to deal with the boy fans. Or folks who are just like, oh, a romance. Oh, man. I would, you know what? Now that you say that, I would have loved to have been in the theater of watching those people just <laughs> stand up and walk, <laughs> walk out. out. But so this is the thing about it. I, I agree with you. We will, we will not talk about the one thing. Other than for me to say, I feel like this film could be so divisive because it's like this genre mash of like a slow burn vibe fest, mm-hmm. you know, a la After Sun or The Florida Project or, you know, one of those ones, there's a letterboxed um, list called Nothing Happens But The Vibes, <laughs> yeah. like one of those films, which are probably my favorite. Yeah. So it's that. And if you've seen Luca Guadagino did um, Call Me By Your Name and he did the more recent Suspiria. Both great. Both great. And both do have like a much slower building tension. Mm-hmm. Right. This, this was a really good. Uh, sorry to interrupt. But I felt like this was a really good balance of the two. The two. Well, so that's what I'm going to get into. So it's that. It's the slow burn vibe fest. But then there's some intense gore. Yes. It's few and far between. That's good. But it is like, like I gasped. Yeah. Yeah. The first time something gory happens on screen. And I knew that this was going to be an aspect of the film. And I knew specifically what. Mm-hmm. Still got us. I was like, oh, oh my goodness. And every time. And I love gore and I love horror. So it's like this slow burn vibe fest with this gory horror. The part that did kind of take me out of it was the moments where the romance leaned out of slow burn romance, like call me by your name romance and leaned into twilight romance yeah. or um, true blood romance or like, like it had some of that in it. Yeah. And that's where this movie lost me. Yeah. It's just that kind of, there's not, we're not taking a lot of steps to develop the romance. We're just like, boom in love. And not even that, it's just there was a certain, I can't even quite put my finger on it, but this is based on a novel. And when I went and looked up the novel, it sounds like it's not a novel we would like. Like that mm. it's very like. It's kind of Twilighty. Yeah. Mm, okay. Like a, I don't know that it is a young adult novel, but that it had, and, and 
this is not to discredit young adult novels because that's actually your favorite genre of novel. I love a YA. I, I love them as well. But there is a certain subset of YA novels that have this really like, Mm, romance. Ah, oh, I'm so different. Mm. Ooh, like, I'm kissing you. Yeah, you're you, oh, you're me. sparkling. Um, <laughs> or just like that popular novel, right? Like when we left it, I told you that I thought Mark Rylance's character of Sully quite reminded me of the um I can't remember what they're called, but the the group of people in Doctor Sleep. Yeah, yeah. And that's the part of Dr. Sleep, both the book and the movie that I just, it's just a little too cheesy for me. Mm. It's just a little too character rather than, yes, this is a character, but there's something fundamentally human that we're exploring here. It's just very like, I am a character. I'm just here to chew the scenery. Yeah. In between the like. With my hat with a feather in it. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'd like to go on the record. If a character has a hat with a feather in it, your your movie's not getting a five out of five from me. <laughs> Take the hat off. Especially if they're like a villainy character with yeah. a hat with a feather in it. Like, I don't know what it is, but I'm just like, could our, our as if I was a part of this, could the costume department not have done anything more subtle here? And why do they have to have like a Southern twang? Well, the thing about Mark Rylance's character is that he he rode that line of like he's mostly chewing the scenery. Mm-hmm. He's mostly over the top. But there were some very subtle moments that intrigued me and stuck with me. Yeah. That were very good. I'm just like more of that. So yeah, this was the thing like by and large I really liked this movie. Um but I wanted it to be more meandering. Yeah. Like every time it became too much of a real plot, every time it mm. became too much of a this is a novel. Yeah. I it lost me. And every time the characters became too charactery, there's also a part in the film where Mar- Marin's leading herself somewhere. And when we finally get to that place, I was like, "Oh my goodness, this feels like ripped straight out of like a cheesy graphic novel." And if the whole film was a cheesy graphic novel or the whole film was chewing the scenery. Yeah then I can get on board with that. But it's like you have this beautiful meandering slow burn with these punctuated moments of like artistically gore that I said artistic gore, artistic gore. I was going to say artistically gore, gory horror, but it's not even really horror, but this artistic gore. And then you have these moments like there's a campfire scene that I also found to be too much chewing of the scenery. Mm. Um, you have these moments that just feel like they came out of the novel and don't actually really fit in here. And that the characters were like, the characters are more ciphers than they are characters. Yeah. Cause it's almost like, cause I I believe that this was a Warner brothers film and I don't know if things have changed, but I remember reading that Warner brothers like canned a bunch of films and were only releasing very few. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, because they're releasing so few films, anything they do release has to appeal to a wide audience. Yeah. So you can, if you kind of look at it through that lens, you can see where they're trying to do that in here. And that's, yeah, that's where it lost me where it's like for the, and and I don't, this is the thing. I don't think that works. Like I've seen people online being like, I wanted it to be more romance or I wanted it to be, it was so meandering. I hated that. Or Mm. like the gore was too much. I wasn't expecting that. Right. And it's, in not just leaning into the Suspiria of it all. 
like really this could have been Call Me By Your Name and Suspiria mashed right up. But then they added in these elements Mm -hmm. where it's trying to be the romance film anyone can go to or be the like the black phone. Like like, like, black phone has some really like character-y characters. But the whole movie's like that. It's funny because they almost went for wide appeal, but it's just wider division. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like instead it doesn't, to me, it ends up not being cohesive in the end. Yeah. Which is such a shame because the parts I liked, I really liked. Like there were parts of this film that I was so mesmerized by. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, Sully's on screen and I'm just like jarred out of this like really engaging grasp the film had on me. Yeah. It's a shame. I I agree. I want to talk about some things I I liked about this. Is one of them the music? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, We got not only a Joy Division song, but we got a New Order song in this too, which was sick as hell. But then when the credits started rolling, um, Peter Seville was one of the designers on this who... If you don't know who Peter Seville is, and I'm a big graphic design nerd, but he was the graphic designer for Factory Records, who was the record company that had Joy Division, had New Order, um, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, uh, numerous other post-punk new wave bands from the 80s. But he he did all the album covers. He did um, a lot of posters and, and stuff like that. Love his style. But he it was clear that the filmmakers wanted to live in this kind of very, because I think the film is set in the eighties. It doesn't say there's no cell phones. So I think so, but like yeah. the vibe is very eighties ish. Um, yeah. so that was, that was great. And you throw joy division or new order in there. I don't, I'm your guy. Um, but I also like, I feel like Luca Guada, Nino is an expert in visceral discomfort. And I feel mm. like he does this through his framing and his cuts. Yeah, there is a sequence at the end of the film that uses cutting with close-ups to such great effect. Yeah. I was really moved by it in an uncomfortable way. Yeah, exactly. And it's like not even like there's anything necessarily gory or upsetting on screen, but it's it's the way that it cuts that creates that discomfort. And Mm -hmm. I loved that. And it was very reminiscent of his work in Suspiria and some of the things he does there technically. Um, but he's so thoughtful of where he chooses to linger and how he chooses to transition that just make that, that, that just pull you in. Like you said, you the yeah. word mesmerizing, like that's the kind of stuff that was pulling me in. Well, and that's where he, and, and Suspiria is where I would say he did this so well, where I'm really compelled by his films is when he plays with tempo through mm. his cuts, through his the types of shots he's using, um, and through music, I would say, where like at times it's lingering, it's slow, mm. and then all of a sudden it like gets you in the face with just like the ramping up of the tempo. Yeah. Like almost like it is a piece of music and we're moving between different signatures, right? <laughs> and like yeah. different uh, time signatures. That kind of jarring, like the film is jarring me out of this um, slower rhythm that it's created that's kind of lulling me into it and then wakes me up out of it through all of a sudden really fast cuts and extreme close-ups 
that I love. When it jarred me because all of a sudden characters are chewing the scenery that I didn't love. Yeah. And I just, I want to see a director's cut of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Because one, so one of my favorite films of all time, which um, they played at Metro last year and we didn't get a chance to see it and I was really disappointed, is My Own Private Idaho. And this had some real My Own Private Idaho vibes. Yeah. Um, but make it gore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, this like being around the Midwest, I believe they're in the Midwest. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know geography, don't especially know. United traveling. States geography. They're traveling. Um, we, yeah, this like, I guess it's like this Western kind of cowboy, you know, sleeping on the road, traveling around that, that my own private Idaho has, has, which this also has, um, which I really loved. Yeah. I, I like, I typically like a road trip movie. There's, yeah. There's something. Crossroads? <sighs> yep. <laughs> I guess so. I've I've watched Crossroads at a lot of sleepovers. This, uh, some more stuff I liked. The visual, like there's visuals in this that, like you said, were particularly shocking and there's some that will stick with me. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the first shock that we got. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll never forget that. It was, it was so well crafted and so well, it was built up to so subtly, but so great. I loved it so much. It was awesome. I also didn't know that Andre Holland was in this. I love him. Um, he was in American Horror Story, I believe, Roanoke. Right. Yes, he was. Um, he was in Moonlight. But I think the thing, I always forget about this, but I think the thing that I loved him in the most was Castle Rock. <gasps> the first season of Castle Rock is so good. Yeah. I really right. liked him in Castle Rock. Yeah. So anytime he pops up, I'm I'm stoked to see him. Um, he's not in it much, but he's he's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I thought Taylor Russell was mesmerizing. Yeah, I didn't know. We looked it up after. She's from Escape Room. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, yeah. I really like that movie. I think it's that's one where it's just schlock the whole way through, and it's fun. Oh yeah. Right. Um, but she is. So I found her so engaging in this. Well, and I think that she did a she did a great job, you know, kind of having to navigate those those moments that felt more on the nose and then the more subtle slow burny kind of moments. Mm-hmm. Like that I feel like that's a really it's really hard to kind of be pulled between those two things. I think she did a good job in both, but I as we've said, would prefer the the more kind of meandering version of the performance just because it was, it was more subtle and nuanced than just like, Oh, I, I do. I love Jacob. Do I love Edward? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> there is no love triangle in this to be clear, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She was great in it. And she's the anchor of the film, right? Yeah. Like, and you know, Timothy Chalamet does chew the scenery a little bit, but yeah. her more subtle, um, quiet but equally engaging performance is a great counterpoint to his more in your face performance there is a sequence because i did sometimes feel like timothy chalamet was leaning more into what like the sully character was like mm-hmm. than what i was really liking about marin or the work that and andre holland does when he's there um but there is a sequence where lee the character of lee is dancing mm-hmm that I found visually mesmerizing. Yeah. And also like the last act of this movie is real good. I liked it yeah. a lot. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, the boy is good. <laughs> it makes me kind of sad that the boy is what is getting so many people into this movie, likely. Yeah. When really they should be coming for Taylor Russell, who is the heart of this movie. Yeah, there is some... We're not speaking about an aspect of this film that there's a, like, further meta thing going on with it that, like, is bringing people into the theater so they can make quippy remarks about it, um, considering who was in Call Me By Your Name hmm. and, like, that it was directed by the mm. same person and so I on honestly, and so forth. I honestly didn't even think about oh, that. Oh, it's everywhere. Uh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's those things that are a shame because as, as we saw from the synopsis, it's Marin, a young woman learns how to survive on the margins of society. It is her film. Yeah. It is her story. And Taylor Russell is so fucking good. And I agree. It's a shame that that isn't the predominant narrative. Although I think that it is, it is something that people are recognizing, but mm. yeah. And also it's a shame that just, there's so many other big movies coming out right now that yeah. I think this is not the priority for most people. Yeah, where it might be getting a little bit more attention if it wasn't competing with like Steven Spielberg's new semi-autobiographical film or the sequel to Knives Out or, you know. Yeah, there's like a big awards push right now because we're getting to the end of the year and like we got to get all these blockbusters out by the end of the year. It's uh, it's unfair, but. Yeah, what I, I think what I just last thing I want to say about like what I think of this movie or, you know. Yeah. Is that I really liked it. Mm-hmm. there's just a degree of disappointment because it, when it is good, it is so good mm-hmm. that I feel like it could have been one of my favorite movies of all time. And it just doesn't quite get there. And I don't think a rewatch is going to get it there where sometimes I'm like on a rewatch, I think I'm going to like this even better. Yeah. I think this will just stay a solid four out of five for me forever. And I, I, this is done when I definitely want to watch again. Yeah. But of the films I've seen, like I've called me by your name, Suspiria and this, it's my least favorite of those three. Yeah. Even though I did really, really like it. Yeah. Like I, I th- liked it a lot. I think of the three, this is oddly maybe the most accessible. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said. Oh, and there is one thing I wanted to, to mention that I forgot, which I think is important, especially considering, you know, the boy is in it and he was in call me by your name. I thought that the romance aspect of this from a sexual perspective was handled so well Mm. in that if you are going into this movie because you want to see sex, (laughs) you're not going to. Yeah. No, you're right. Like, and I think that when we are dealing with younger people on the screen, that I like the way that this film approached that. There is a sensuality to their relationship. Yeah. Sex is involved in their relationship, but that is not what we see. That's a that's a good point because I, I hadn't thought about that. But you still feel, yeah, you you still feel that that passion and that intimacy that exists between them without having to like depict anything on screen. But if you went into the film because you wanted to see Timothy Timothy Chalamet having sex with someone, yeah, you're not going to get that. Sorry. And I, I really, I actually really did appreciate that. Yeah. Like, because that, yeah, it's, it's like watching a horror film where you feel like you saw all of the kills, but the cuts tricked you into seeing that. That's kind of what this film does to the like sensual, sexual part of Lee and Marin's relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was really, really beautifully handled. 
And I think it's something that we could, that filmmakers could take note of, particularly when they're dealing with sexual romance for younger characters of how to do that in a way that doesn't discount the reality of that mm -hmm. and the importance of that to people of that age, but also doesn't exploit these young people's bodies. Yeah. Well put. Love Thank that. you. Awesome. Uh, how did it make you feel? So even though we didn't really talk about this, um, it did make me feel a little wistful for like the early stages of like a romance or like oh. the early stages of like our love, you know, mm. like there's a certain energy, you know, in contrast to water lilies, there's a certain energy to like high school relationships or like young adult relationships. And I mean, maybe even later, but yeah, I've been with you for 13 years, so I, I can't speak to <laughs> new relationships in my 20s and 30s. That has like an intensity and a passion and a like desire to only be with that person in all of the moments of your day that is both not sustainable mm -hmm. and also really amazing. Well, there's like this kind of sense as you get older, like once you're in high school to early adulthood, there's this sense of independence where mm -hmm. like you're making this decision for yourself. Mm -hmm. So you're going to completely own it and let it just wrap you up and take over your life. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, and the way that the film explores that in a more metaphorical way, mm -hmm. I think is really, like, that's a part of it I really liked. So there was a little bit of a, like, oh, yeah, the early days of love. There's, like, a, um, there's a little bit of wistfulness to that. Mm. Unlike Water Lilies, where I was, like, thank God I'm not there anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then also just, like, when it had me mesmerized, I was so hooked, and I have not been shocked and, like, just like a gog at something on the screen since the cliff scene in Midsommar. Mm. Um, and that gets like all the hand claps from me. Yeah. No, you? That's great. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were moments I felt discomforted, but I was also pulled in and mesmerized by certain aspects of it. Um, I agree with what, what, with what you're saying, but uh, you know, as we, as we kind of said too, I was a little disappointed. Yeah. Um. Just kind of where things netted out. I I had expectations for this film that weren't fulfilled in some degrees, and and were in others. So, but yeah, I agree. Solid four out of five, and not one I'll be revisiting a lot. But I am glad that it exists. Think you revisit it at all? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. One day I'll be like, I want to see that boy. I want to see that boy again. <laughs> Well, we're halfway through. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, had a freaking half hour conversation about Roger Rabbit. <laughs> I, I'm so yeah, excited, so excited for to this. talk about this. So I knew that both of us wanted to see this movie. And you kept asking me what the genre was. And I didn't want to tell you it was a documentary because I felt like you'd figure out what film it was if I said that. And I wasn't sure that you knew that it had come on to Disney+. Plus. Mm -hmm. And you hadn't. So I was able to surprise you with my mystery pick, which was Fire of Love. Came out in 2022. As I said, it's a documentary. It was directed by Sarah Dosa and written by Shane Boris, Aaron Casper, and Jocelyn Sheput. Um, it features narration by Miranda July. I love Miranda July. So that was a, um, a thumbs up. And it features archival footage of Katja Kraft and Maurice Kraft. The synopsis for this documentary is it is the story of how intrepid scientists and lovers Katya and Maurice Kraft unraveled the mysteries of volcanoes by capturing the most explosive imagery ever recorded. Mm -hmm. 
we had heard so much praise for this film from like people who we really align with their movie tastes. Um, also just from like the, the critics and reviews. Um, but we just never got around to seeing it when it did come to Metro, unfortunately. Just the, the days didn't align and it, it didn't play in any other theaters, I don't think, near us. Um, so I was so excited when I saw that this was on Disney+, Plus, which we have a subscription to, and that we could watch it. What did you think of Fire of Love? I was so excited that you picked this. Because, yeah, of everything you just said, uh, we really we really wanted to see it. I really wanted to see it when it was at Metro. It just yeah, didn't line up. So it's been a while. Um, yeah. So f- first off, a little background on me. When I was a kid, I loved volcanoes. Uh, I was like a we. I had really weird, <laughs> like just a meandering track of things that I was obsessed with. Volcanoes was one of them. I had recorded and taped a bunch of volcano specials off Discovery Channel wow. and, and watched them on repeat. And it was the same way with like tornadoes and the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember when we were in elementary school, we had the Scholastic Book Fair. Mm-hmm. But we also had the Scholastic Book Orders, which it was really funny because I remember not ordering anything from the book fa- or the book orders. But every time the book orders would come and the teachers would hand them out, I'd be like, I wonder if they have something for me. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing full well, I didn't, didn't order, order anything. anything. But sometimes I did get to order stuff and I would get books on the Titanic or volcanoes or tornadoes. I also, this is this is a bit of a tangent now, but I remember going to a book fair one year when I was quite young. And I really liked video games, still do. But I remember playing a lot of Mortal Kombat. And I went to the book fair and asked the person who was running it, do you have any Mortal Kombat books? <laughs> <laughs> like looking for some honest, like little kid fiction on Mortal Kombat. And I remember like, bless her soul, she looked for it. She's like, there was none. No, there's no Mortal Kombat kids books. But little Elliot loved volcanoes. I, I loved volcanoes. So... Another thing I just have to say about you, and I think we've said this before, but you are a romantic. Big time. You love love. I do love love. I'm a little bit more cynical. I don't love love as much. That's the... And I don't love volcanoes. But that's that's where we compliment each other. Yeah. So this, I feel like this movie was literally made for you. Yeah. Well, and the beautiful thing was I saw ourselves and our mm-hmm. relationship in Katya and Maurice mm-hmm. and their relationship, just their whole approach and dynamic that they had was very, very much reminded me of us, mm-hmm. which was awesome because I don't see that a lot. Mm-hmm. We don't see the kind of relationship we have depicted on screen very often. And like, just the fact that they make like they're, they're passionate about the same thing. And the fact that they make their passion and each other a priority in their lives that they choose to share together was so beautiful to see. And they just seemed like they were they were best friends, right? Like yeah. they just like at one point they they talk about like not really liking other humans, although they did seem to have like a group of friends that they of other like volcano volcanologists, mm. what it is? Yeah. Um who would join them on on these trips, but I just yeah, this film is so much more than a documentary about volcanoes or, you know, I watched the trailer after and it makes it seem like it's all just about love. Mm. It's neither. To me, what this film is, is like this beautiful exploration of how vast the world is and yet how intimate our connections 
to each other or aspects of the world or the things that we love are mm -hmm. this like simultaneous vastness and intimacy mm -hmm. of like our connections, our feelings, our goals, the things we love. And you don't have to be in a relationship or love volcanoes to be incredibly moved by this film. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great. Because, like, I just love, I love the focus of the documentary because it is, I mean, it's very focused on volcanoes, but it's, it's focused on volcanoes through the lens of Katya and Maurice mm -hmm. who were very passionate about it together. Mm -hmm. So like we're learning about volcanoes, but learning about them through this lens, it was just like, it felt, it felt so personal. And the thing I love so much is they are obsessed with and interested in volcanoes together, but in different ways. Yeah. And so they complement each other and they help each other see what they love about this thing that they both love through different lenses, mm -hmm. which is so cool. And the footage, holy shit, it's unreal. It's so artful. As I was watching this, I was like, Wes Anderson, eat your fucking heart out. This is better than anything you've ever done. <laughs> and this was two scientists. Well, it was I, a geologist and a chemist who loved volcanoes and they, their images are better than yours. Well, yeah, it's fucking gorgeous. And like, there's a point in this where Katya and Maurice like say, we're not like, we're not filmmakers. Like, we're just documenting this stuff. It's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> you are filmmakers. <laughs> like, this stuff is gorgeous. And just, yeah. like, so intentionally framed. And, like, I wonder if they're being cheeky when they're like, oh, yeah, we're not filmmakers. <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's a documentary. And so, you know, they have to be selective of what they put in there to create a narrative. Which, I have to say, I love documentary film. But we have watched, with the exception of Butterfly in the Sky, we have watched quite a few documentaries recently that I have been so disappointed with the lack of pur purpose, lack of organization, and lack of style mm -hmm. when they're just like, here's a story. Finally, a documentary with purpose, organization, and style. Yeah. Like just a take documentary out of it. This is a brilliant film. Yeah. And I was just, what a welcome change to make me have hope in documentary filmmaking again. Yeah. Um, something that stood out for me and is probably one of my favorite things, one of my favorite versions of this I've ever experienced was Miranda July's narration. It's so reflective and it keeps the tone. Like yes. it helps to unify the tone of the film and to keep the pace. Mm -hmm. Like it creates the tempo of the film and the emotional tone of the film. Loved it. Yeah. Everything is so purposeful and so effective because I think that, you know, having not read the synopsis necessarily for this film and kind of knowing where Katya and Maurice's story go will go by mm -hmm. the end of the film, it still hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm -hmm. But it was done so respectfully and so beautifully and through Miranda July's narration, it just, it had a lot of heart behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact that a documentary that focuses on volcanoes can make me feel so, such big feelings is, is impressive. Yeah. I like, this is one that I just think everybody should watch. Yeah. Like 
no, nothing more needs to be said. Just everybody should watch this. It is one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. 2022. Ugh. Good Lord. Freaking killing it. Yeah. Like, I know we keep saying best movie I've ever seen, but 2022 is crushing it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the best documentaries I've ever seen. One of the best films I've ever seen. I will watch it again and again and again. Yeah. And the, if for nothing else, the imagery is astounding. Yeah. How did Fire of Love make you feel? It made me feel really seen. <laughs> uh, just from the relationship perspective. Um, I, I, yeah, like I said, I love the dynamic between Katya and Maurice. It was just so beautiful. Um, and it hit me both in my eyes and the heart. Oh. What about you? This movie made me feel in awe of what it means to be a human on this earth. Yeah. There's just like this exploration and respect for that you see in Katya and Maurice that they understand their insignificance and our, our insignificance as people on this earth that we don't have any control over. And yet that through them you see the significance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we are both so insignificant and yet every moment, every connection, every feeling that we have makes it significant. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. So good. <sighs> oh boy. In a strong swing in another direction. Okay. So it was my mystery movie pick and I picked the 1985 drama thriller war film. Come and see. It was directed by Elam Klimov and written by Aless Adam Adamovich and Elam Klim, Klimov. Man, I'm struggling with names today. Um, and it stars in our main roles Alexei Kravchenko as Fleora and Olga Mironova as Glasha. Uh, the synopsis is, after finding an old rifle, a young boy joins the Soviet resistance movement against ruthless German forces and experiences the horrors of World War II. Okay, so this has been on the list for a while, and this is, there's an, an official top 250 narrative feature films on Letterboxd, and this is number one, mm -hmm. and has been for some time. Um, okay. What did you think of Come and See? When I figured out what it was, I was like, oh boy. Because I picked this for like a Friday night after a particularly tough week. I was like, yeah, let's. It was a tough day. Yeah. It was a tough week, but like, I think I had literally spent the last two hours talking about how tough my week culminating in this very tough day and then we had was. fucking difficult pizza crusts and snafu it was brutal. all i wanted was to make pizza <laughs> and pillsbury fuck it <laughs> yeah so i was like okay all right and you said if you're not up for it we can switch we can and switch. i was like no let's do it let's do it we're gonna do it eventually and i feel like anytime we were gonna put it on as a mystery movie pick we'd be like Big oh, breath. Okay. So Metro has played this. I am thankful I saw it at home. Mm. Which is interesting because very often you're like, I need to see certain movies in the theater. There's just 
The narrative around this film is that it is one of the bleakest things you will ever see and that a lot of people say once was enough for me. And there are films that I, people say that about and then I watch them and I'm like, yeah, nope, this one, that's true. Mm-hmm. It is like the goddamn opposite of how Fire and Fire of Love made me feel. Yeah. It is so bleak in a very realistic way. It's yeah. incredibly painful to watch and you can just like feel that it's going to continue to get more painful. And yet at the same time, it's so perfectly purposefully cinematic. Like it's just. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And many people have said similar things, but it's the most honest and grueling depiction of the anguish of, of the anguish of war that I've ever seen. Um, and we, after the film wrapped and we kind of just sat in silence for a little while, we were on the Criterion channel and there was a, a quick interview with Karen Kusama, who's the director of Jennifer's body. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of talking about this film and, its impact on her as a filmmaker and, and uh, cinephile. And she was saying, and I agree with this, that it'd be, di- it was difficult to watch the depictions of the, and the very, you know, polished Hollywood war films after seeing this mm-hmm. of just how glossy they make war and how like kind of gorgeous they make war look where this is just so fucking gritty and, well, this comes back to what, you know, at the end of the day, the director is attempting to do, right? Is this like war propaganda mm-hmm. or is it, you know, so the Wikipedia page for this has some really uh, well, well stated things. But one of the things I read was from Klimov and he said, um, quote, I understood this would be a very brutal film and that it was unlikely that people would be able to watch it. I told this to my screenplay co-author, the writer Alice Adamovich, and he replied, let them not watch it then. This is something we must leave after us as evidence of war and as a plea for peace. Oh, wow. But just that, let them not watch it then. Yeah. Like, I mean, even the title, Come and See, it's a, it's an invitation and a warning at the same time. Yeah. Like you, what you love, Dunkirk. Yeah. Come and see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, I find that statement that let them not watch it then. Yeah. And what does that say about you? Like it's, it's, um. Yeah. Like, fuck you. This happened. Mm -hmm. And we're going to show you what happened and what it was like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I like that. So this film, like if you know anything about it, you've likely seen images of Alexei Kravenchko's face which is these close up on Floria's face is like the unifying thread through the film, both like the cinematic thread. There's a lot of like um, medium shots that like really like isolate uh, a human in the frame and focus on like their facial expression. But Floria's are the ones that kind of are continually used to create a thread within the film and the cinematic strikingness of this and then the emotional intensity of it is kind of indescribable. Yeah. I, w- I want to break those two things apart a little bit. So like the cinematography 
is, yeah, like you said, it's just incredibly intimate because it's, yeah, it's these locked off frames where the individual is centered in the frame. And so often there's just staring right down the lens. Yeah. Right at the audience. And it's almost confrontational. Again, evokes that come and see. Yeah. It's just like you've seen what's going on. And then we take this moment to hyper-focus on this person and it's like, this is humanity and this is what it's capable of. This is what it does to people. Um, and this is how people respond to it. Some of those shots are so, yeah, like you said, indescribable. Like they just, it hits you in the soul. Mm-hmm. And like as a human, it just hits you on this very human level. But the other, the other half of what you were talking about, which is what sticks with me and like almost makes me emotional thinking about is is the performance by Alexei uh, Kravchenko. It, I mean, is that person okay? <laughs> like his transformation over the course of the film to the climactic moment at the end of the film is utter perfection from a performance standpoint. Like he was 14 when they filmed this. Like I don't know I didn't, and I didn't look up if this did anything at the Oscars. And as we've said time and time again, the Oscars are bullshit. But <laughs> yeah. If like this should have been nominated for Best Picture, and he should have been nominated for Best Actor, because it's a performance unlike anyone I've ever seen, and a transformation, both it both liter- literally in that it's the ramifications of war are seen in him both physically and psychologically as, mm-hmm. as the film goes on. He could give a masterclass on how to act with your face mm-hmm. without using any dialogue. He says so much just with his expressions in his face. Yeah, no, it was not nominated for any Academy Awards. It won the Golden Prize at the Moscow International Film Festival and the Fipreski Prize. And then in 2017... At the Venice International Film Festival, it won the Classics Award for Best Restored Film. Mm. Um, yeah, I remember seeing that at the beginning of the film. The overall winner in the Academy Awards 1985 was Amadeus. <laughs> okay, I haven't seen it. I can't speak to it. Yeah, it, like that. That and the Killing Fields like won the most things. Mm. So. It wasn't even nominated for foreign language film or what we now call international film. I mean, who knows? Like maybe it was also just like Klimov or the studio was just like, no, like we're not going to, we're not going to submit it. Forget it. Yeah. There's also like, who knows the politics of the distribution, right? Like yeah. when it became available here. Yeah. Um, something I do want to mention that again, I, I read this from the Wikipedia page, but I thought it was very well said for whoever wrote this. Um, that the film creates a maximum sense of immediacy, realism, hyperrealism, and surrealism operating in equal measure. Mm, yeah. And then the first one of the first things on the wiki page says that the film quote mixes hyperrealism with an underlying surrealism and philosophical ex- existentialism with poetical, psychological, political, and apocalyptic apocalyptic themes. Yeah. And that was the thing that I think that mix of realism, hyperrealism and surrealism working in tandem through the purposeful direction of the film, through the pacing, 
and how the pacing shifts through the use of these medium shots and and close-ups and um these paralleled moments and mirrored moments and like at times it feels like a fantasy and at times it feels like the most grim real thing that you just want to close your eyes at and those kind of like weave in and out of each other yeah yeah the the surrealist aspects i didn't expect but just heightened the experience and took it to places that yeah that i wasn't expecting but does it so the whole film is crafted just so i'd say beautifully but I don't even know, like, just like, honestly, I don't even know what the word to describe it would be. Um, yeah. Like we sat in, in silence for a while after this, this finished. Cause it, it, it's like a two hour and 20 minute movie too. So like you're with it for a long time and mm-hmm. you know, it's the highest rated film narrative film on letterboxd. I wasn't so quick to be like, this is a five out of five but then i sat with it for a day and then even now two days later after having watched it this is a five out of five for me because of how it's just resonated in me and like reflecting back on it the things that it was saying and the things it was portraying are unlike anything i've ever seen and i feel like this is just kind of the this is the best depiction of war in a film that I've ever seen. If you could say that, if you could say the best, like it's just the most human. And I don't know, it just, it's, it's going to stick with me forever. Do you think you'd watch it again? (laughs) Yes, but not for a while. Yeah. And you'd be mindful about when you do. Yeah. Like I would, if Metro put it on, I would go now. now. Yeah. Now that I've seen it, I'm glad that I was able to experience you know, there's a real, um, it is difficult to watch this film. Mm-hmm. And yet I didn't feel like it was overly attempting to shock me or like, it's not even particularly graphic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an emotional intensity and a philosophical moral intensity. Mm-hmm that doesn't need to be cannibal Holocaust or a Serbian film to make you feel an intensity. And I really appreciate that about it, but I'm glad that I was able to experience that, you know, in the um, kind of controlled environment of our house. Yeah. And I now would know what I was getting into if I saw it in the theater. Yeah. If and when I would like to, this is a, a slight shift, but um, I want to tell you what the top three films on IMDb's 250 list are as compared to the top three films on Letterboxd 250. I think, I, I think I've done this before. Yeah, go for it. Which do you want to hear first? Let's let's count it down. Let's go three, two, one. With uh starting with IMDb or starting with Letterboxd? Uh let's do number three. Let's do number three on IMDb first. No, 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 no. On Letterboxd and then IMDb. So the third highest rated narrative film on Letterboxed is Harakiri. It is oh, yeah. a um, Masaki Kobayashi film from 1962. And then you want to hear IMDb's? Yep. The Dark Knight. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. The second 
narrative feature film on Letterboxd is Parasite. Mm-hmm. IMDb's is The Godfather. Uh-huh. And then Letterboxd's top narrative feature film is Come and See. IMDb's is The Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> and that tells you everything you need to know about the difference between these <laughs> two sites. Yeah. I mean, all three of those IMDb films are in the top 250 on Letterboxd. Yeah. Uh, Shawshank is 10. Godfather is 5. Dark Knight is 14. But yeah, there's just kind of this like undenying. <laughs> and I think um, so in this one, Come and See is 95 on IMDb. Parasite is 34 and Harakiri is 44. So they're like those six films are on both lists, but in very different order. Especially Come and See. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is a film that I think really other people have said things much smarter than us. And I yeah. feel like I don't. Uh, and I, I, it's still really recent. And I think everyone should see this film, um, but be prepared for the emotional and moral intensity of it. Yeah. 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 This will be and is a very important film for me. Um, and yeah, I think that as I sit with it longer, it will my relationship with it will shift and change and evolve. And I think that that's a really great thing for a film to do. Well, and it was uh, Klimov's last film because he said he'd said everything he needed to say. And so I think what a beautiful um, honoring of that, that this film is something that shifts and changes and you and me and, and other folks who watch it are reflecting on and, having conversations about because it seems to me like that was the point of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not to me, to me, it doesn't feel didactic. It feels like an invitation and a warning, come and see this. And then you decide for yourself. Yeah. Because it, it is such a um, cinematic and effective film that it does ultimately leave the interpretation and the feelings to the viewer to reflect on. Yeah. I think, which is um, very different from most war films that I've seen. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Okay. How did come and see make you feel? So in direct contrast to how fire of love made me feel in awe of what it means to be a human on this earth. This film made me feel absolute despair at the depravity of what it means to be a human on this earth. And yeah. both of those things are true. Yeah. Both of those things are simultaneously true. And I feel both um, surprised at how those we, we managed to watch those two films that made me feel that way back to back in the same week. And also in complete gratitude to art and cinema that these two amazing and difficult truths of what it means to be a human on this earth can be reflected to me and have me reflect through art. Yeah. I just love it. It, Yeah. Yeah. Especially watching them back to back. Like the fact that you could take a scene out of fire love and a scene out of come and see 
and look at them side by side and be like, those exist on the same place. Mm -hmm. And And both things are true. We cannot extricate those two things from each other. Yeah. That to be here is to be awful. And to be here is to be incredible. Yeah. Those two things are true at the same time. Yeah. How did it make you feel? I mean, yeah, it made me very, it, it made me feel very depressed by humanity and what we're capable of. Um, it, it, it made me, I was in awe of the feat that was this film mm-hmm. and what was, and what was achieved with it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible. It'll, it'll stick with me forever. So will this next one? Oh, I can't. Because of the nature of how we do this show, it's just what we watch in a week. And we really don't pre-plan it. You end up watching Come and See on a Friday night and then watching Honey, I Shrunk the Kids (laughs) on a Saturday afternoon. And that is our show in a nutshell. Yeah. It's not for everyone. But if you're listening, I take it it's for you and we love you for it. I wonder if in the history of the world... (laughs) Come and see has ever been immediately followed up by Honey I Shrunk <laughs> by the Kids honey, I shrunk in the like kids. on a review on a podcast episode. Ever well here you heard it here. Um, so in correction to what you Elliot said at the start of the episode, Honey I Shrunk the Kids did not come out in 1988. It came out in 1989. Oh pee pee poo poo. So sorry. <laughs> so you both misspoke and you need to change the graphic. Well, we should probably go back and record the whole episode. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start over. Um, so. so Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, 1989 adventure comedy family film directed by Joe Johnston with a story by Stuart Gordon and Brian Yunza and a screenplay by Ed Neha. Uh, I got too overwhelmed by writing all of the actors' names. (laughs) So I gave up after Rick Moranis is Wayne Selinsky and Marcia Strassman is Diane Selinsky. I gave up. There's too many people in this. Do you have anybody else you want me to say? Um, we'll say Matt Frewer is Big Russ Thompson. Uh, we'll say Amy O'Neill is Amy. Jared Rushton is Ron. Thomas Wilson Brown is Little Russ Thompson. <laughs> Kristen Sutherland is May Thompson. They, okay, I'm done. <laughs> thank, thank you. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't even remember being overwhelmed and stopping, but I clearly did. So, the synopsis for Honey I Shrunk the Kids. The scientist father of a teenage girl and boy accidentally shrinks his and two other neighborhood teens to the size of insects. Now the teens must fight diminutive dangers as the father searches for them. Whoa. Diminutive (laughs) dangers. The alliteration. Okay. We both watched this movie on repeat as children. And uh, Metro Cinema, our favorite place in the world, has a a program that they do called Real Family Cinema. I think we've spoken about it before where they play like classic or just well-known family films on Saturday afternoons. And so we went and saw it in the movie theater. On I Shrunk the Kids, what did you think? Revisiting it in your 30s. Yeah, it's much like Who Framed Roger Rabbit for me. This was another childhood staple that was just on repeat constantly when I was a kid. Um, and rewatching it now... And uh, I feel like I haven't watched it since I was a kid. Um, I definitely have not seen it since I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, I think it holds up. 
Yeah, I was like fully expecting for this to be really bad. Yeah. Doesn't have a great score on Letterboxd. No. And so many people that I follow have given it like one, one and a half. What? This is like at least a three. Come on. Not bad. Yeah. I don't know. I think I slapped this with a four. Because I don't know. I think it's pretty good, actually. Like, I think the story is actually pretty good. I think the characterization is like peak, like 80s vibe, like very Spielberg, very. And to start that off. So we were really late for this movie. We walked in right as it was starting, which is not typical for us. We usually get there like 20, 30 minutes early and just kind of like hang out, relax, find parking. Um, And this happened. I have to apologize to you. It was my fault. I'm reading a book and I was in the middle of like a reveal and I couldn't just put that down. Mm-hmm. I had to finish the chapter. It was really intense. It's by the author of A Little Life. So like... You understand, I think, that when... <laughs> I do. I, I couldn't. I was like, I have to finish this chapter. And even then I didn't want to stop, but I was like, okay, like I, I, it is a point of transition, so I, I will. Um, so we walked in right as the film was starting, and the opening sequence, basically the reanimator opening sequence, but for kids. <laughs> yeah. Like So this is peak 80s. I love Rick Moranis so much. <laughs> yeah. I love him so much. I want the best for him. I love him. Yeah. I love him specifically. Well, I like him as Bob and Doug McKenzie. But I love him specifically as Seymour and Little Shop of Horrors. But I love Rick Moranis. Yeah. So I was going to love this movie no matter what. He's actually does. He doesn't play a huge role in this film. Like he's not in it as much as I remember him being in it. I feel. Yeah. Like the kids are the focus. Yeah. I'd say he's the... (laughs) Honestly, the neighbors are a pretty big deal. Yeah, we spent a lot of time with the neighbors. So, Mr. Thompson. Big Russ. Big Russ. Oh, Big Russ, Little Russ, I get it. Um, He seemed so familiar to me the whole time we were watching it. When we leave, you're like, do you recognize him? And I was like, no. And you're like, he's Dr. Leakey from Orphan Black. And I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) That's a deep cut. Don't know if anyone who's listening has watched Orphan Black. But Dr. Leakey's a freaking creep. Yeah. So there was like this insidiousness to him <laughs> because I've seen Orphan, we've seen Orphan Black. I have to ask, Big Russ is set up to be like a real cranky crank, like a real like asshole, grumpy neighbor. Yeah. Honestly, if I was in his position, I'd be grumpy too. Why? If Wayne Selinsky was your neighbor and he was making noise all the time and wouldn't cut his grass and like, wouldn't you be annoyed? But like, I mean, we're definitely not privy to the dynamic prior to the film, but I feel like that can just be solved with a, you know, go knock on the door and be like, hey, listen, uh, I know you're a big scientist guy. Maybe on Saturday mornings, start a little bit later. So I... Or on the flip side, Wayne is like, hey, listen, I got this conference coming up. I got to finish this stuff. (laughs) So let me say to you, we may not be privy... But clearly that wouldn't work considering Wayne's wife has gone and stayed with her mother because she is so up to here with the fact that he won't do anything other than focus on his experiments. Mm. So if he won't even change for his family, he's not going to start a little bit later for the neighbor or let the neighbor know ahead of time. So I feel like Big Russ is really painted as like the typical like, man, he is such a buzzkill. And I was like, honestly, being in my 30s, I can relate. You have a house. 
it's you have a, a space that's yours and your neighbors are infringing on like the comfort of that, I'd be annoyed too. <laughs> now he's a pretty like this movie is about dads. 100%. Like it is about through the shrinking of these kids the way that they relate to the dynamic they have with their fathers who the fathers start to reflect on the dynamic they have with their kids as they worry about them being gone. Right. And like both Wayne and big Russ have great qualities as dads and some really shitty qualities as dads. Yeah. Like they honestly, those two characters encompass the fact that bad dad, rad dad is a false binary. Yeah. Because they are both, both. Yeah. Do you know what's funny is that, I, I felt that way too. And I knew the name Joe Johnston, the director. So I looked up what else he has done. He's done Jumanji. He did Jurassic Park 3. And he did the live action segments of the Page Master. Oh. All three of which have child dad. Okay, wait, is he still alive? Conflicts. I don't know. I mean, he did a Captain America First Avenger. Oh, no, he is still alive because I looked this up. There is a pre, there's a pre-production film on there called Shrunk which is apparently a sequel to this film that's going to be coming out starring Rick Moranis <gasps> and Josh Gad as Nick, his son. No way. Okay, that is so cool. And also, like, do you think he'd come on our show? Joe, like he, Joe Johnson well, or he Rick obvi- Moranis? No, well, oh my goodness. Rick Moranis, don't even, I wish. Joe Johnston clearly has dad stuff. Yeah. And I'd love to have him come on our show and talk <laughs> about it. He directed Captain America, the first Avenger. Yeah. Do I really like Joe Johnston <laughs> and the Wolfman? Yeah. People don't like oh, that movie. 2010. Yeah. People don't like that movie. Um, all right. Okay. So isn't that interesting though? That is interesting. That he's made four movies where there's actually like a notable, um, strain between a dad and his kid. Well, I mean, that just suggests to me that that's, as Celine Sciamma, you know, is consistently focusing on the pain of like a love that cannot be, mm. or as um, the Cohen brothers are continually looking at like the folly of humanity and the darkness that coincides with the humor. I mean, yeah, I know it's Jumanji and it's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I get it. But I think we can put it in the same basket and say that he has an emotional through line or a thematic through line through his work, that there's a a thing that he's just drawn back to exploring. Yeah. And I, for one, love it. I thought this movie was really funny. Yeah. It, uh, it was great. And there was, there was also a sequence we found out in the credits. There was a sequence in this that was, um, the visual effects were led by Phil Tippett of Mad God fame, uh, and Jurassic Park fame, which was great. But I got to tell you something about this movie. That still kind of exists from when I was a kid. When I watched this as a, a, a little boy, you I had a crush on Amy. Had a big old crush yeah, on Amy. Yeah, I am not even <laughs> a little bit surprised. Why aren't you surprised? She's exactly the type of person you'd have a crush on. <laughs> like, also, like, she's a babe. Yeah. But, like, she's, like, kind of badass. She, honestly, she kind of has some, like, Laura Dern vibes. Yeah. She has some, um, what's her name in Jurassic Park? Ellie? Yeah, she has Ellie vibes. Yeah. Even like her, her outfit's good. Yeah, she seems like cool as hell, but also she's like dancing in the kitchen, so she's yeah. kind of a goob. Yeah, no, it, it, that doesn't surprise me at all. And like she gave me like butterflies then. 
I'm not going to lie. I totally forgot about it until she showed up on screen. I'm like, oh, I like her. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, uh. <laughs> I really like that. I am really curious, though, like seeing that they're making this potentially this movie called Shrunk that is very specifically says it's a follow up to 1989's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So He's kind of doing a uh, he's kind of doing a, ha- a Halloween kills kind of thing where he's <laughs> discounting all like the other two sequels that happened and is wanting to create the what would you call it the shrunk series the honey the honey sh- the honey the honeys. I have to say the title of this movie is so good like honey I shrunk the kids it's such a good title it's so good oh my god I love it um there's a joke in this movie that is so funny and the movie knows it because it returns to it a couple times. It even ends the film with it. Um, like there's a little like additional scene at the end that like brings the joke back. But it is a really good joke. Yeah. And I actually I found myself laughing quite a lot in this movie. Now we did see it on a Saturday afternoon where like children under 12 come free, which is great. There Ch- were some chatty children. Ch- children are busy. Children are busy. Yeah. Like moving around, kicking things. Asking questions. Asking a lot of questions. How did you feel about that versus the old ladies from last week? I'll take the kids because the kids aren't full. Like I can understand kids not fully grasping movie theater etiquette. Yeah. And us going for all intents and purposes on their turf. It's a, it's a yeah. free matinee for them. Yeah. It would be like going to stars and strollers and being upset that it's yeah, busy. Yeah. But if you have an experience like when we saw Deathly Hallows, where a person takes their young children who clearly this movie is too dark for them and then their children start crying, I think you need to be respectful and take the kids out and like yeah. not come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. So it's about whose turf is this? If and if it's just a regular old film, everybody should abide by the social etiquette. And if you are bringing your children, you should ensure they do. And if they don't, you should leave. Yeah. But you if te- it's a you kid's teach film. The, you have to teach them the yeah. etiquette. And I am okay with the fact that they might not know it yet. Okay, gotcha. If you're a fucking old lady, who I assume this isn't your first rodeo and first film that you've gone to, you should know that you don't talk in full volume. I would like to say we got some responses to the question, is it rude to tell old ladies to shut up in the theater? And my favorite one comes from Isaac, who said, why not? (laughs) Why not tell old ladies to shut up? Yeah, get fucked. Elliot, that was too harsh. (laughs) I would like to say that we would do it much kinder than that if we did. Um, Yeah, I guess. But it seems like the overwhelming response is, it is okay. It is okay to say you need to be quiet. Hi there. Please. Have you heard of the social contract? (laughs) You are not living up to it. Hi there. Have you learned about our social contract when it comes to movies? So the other thing I want to say is I made you laugh. Um really hard in this movie because <laughs> yeah. I leaned over and I said, do you remember this movie? And you said, yeah. And I said, I don't, maybe my memory isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like this big revelation in the middle of this kid's movie. Oh my God. I have a bad memory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like, all I can say is this movie, if you have never seen honey, I shrug the kids, I don't necessarily recommend picking it up and watching it. But if you liked this as a kid or you just watched come and see, <laughs> You need a come down from come and see. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that kids. will do it for you. 
I honestly, I liked it. I was really impressed at how the visuals held up because mostly they did um, practical stuff. Practi- yeah, and it was quite fun actually. Like the, I yeah. think what they did is built oversized sets. Yeah, and it was really fun. Like Fucking there's a awesome. sequence where they're like being swept up by a broom. Well, and, and it cuts between the like real size stuff and then this like oversized set in ways that were really fun and made me think of how like how much ingenuity went into cutting the film such that it feels like it's real. Whereas I feel like if they made this today and I'm worried about when they make shrunk, even though I will definitely go see that, even though I find Josh Gad as annoying as Roger Rabbit, Olaf is horrifically annoying. You were not responding to this at all. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Ellie was just staring at me like, (laughs) no emotion on his face. Who are you? (laughs) Um, I worry at how bad this would be if it was CGI. Yeah, it I, it would not have aged as well. No, for sure. Like the, there's so much magic to the fact that they have these things that it's even as simple as them putting like a freaking loose screw that the kids are standing next to. Yeah. And I love it. It's, it's, it's so easy, but it's so the magic of like big comfy couch and like like you just want to be on that set and you yeah. want to be there and yeah, it's a little freaky to think about being like as tiny as a bug, but also like you kind of want to do it too. Do you know what science like I just I can't fathom and really breaks my brain when I start thinking about it that exists in this movie? And it also I'm playing God of War Ragnarok right now. It exists in that as well is when something is gigantic com- compared to something that's really small, that the speeds of those things are drastically different. That so, makes sense. So like. The fact, you know, Rick Moranis, when we're going to like him and we're not focused on the kids, he's sweeping like quickly, right? But when we're down with the kids, it's like really slow coming to the, it's like the same in uh, anything with like Ant-Man when he gets really big. All of a sudden, all of his movements are really slow. So is it not impressive that Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in 1989 adventure comedy family film actually considers that? Well, that's so impressive. It is. But I just, I can't understand how when you're really small, the same movement is slowed down. Any scientists listening? DM us? Yeah. I mean, we can also Google it, <laughs> but <laughs> if you don't understand, but it, if you no. are a scientist, like that's way more fun. So yeah, let us know, but it just breaks my brain. I don't understand how that the, the speed and time difference happens. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How did Honey, I Shark the Kids make you feel? Once again, nostalgic as hell and just elated at how pleasantly surprised I was of how good it still is. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's amazing. It's right up there with the likes of After Sun and Come and See. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. How, how did uh, how did it make you feel? It just made me feel so warm and so chuckly. Warm. Yeah. Yeah. It was really lovely. It was it was like I've seen an old friend. Yeah, it it was like a hug from the past. Oh. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it was really nice. Yeah. I really liked it. It's so easy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, we've We're, talked about a lot of yeah, movies. We talked about a lot of movies. Let's we are fi- running long. Let's talk about bad dads. Let's find dads. some dads. Yeah. Okay. Bad dad nominee for you. Okay. So this was a tough week because I actually found it difficult to find rad dads, but there were so many options for bad dads right. and and different directions to go. Mm-hmm. What I decided on for my bad dad nominee is Mark Rylance's character of Sully from Bones and All. Right. Okay. My um, justification for this is that there is a guise of mentorship or parental protection Mm. that is just used for his own gains. Yeah. And that is ultimately deceptive. Um, And like primarily the biggest one for me was the immense lack of respect for boundaries and for boundary setting. Yeah. You? That's good. Yeah. I, I actually chose Big Russ Thompson. From Honey, no, the uh-uh. kids. he learns his lesson. Well, like, g- give me a give me a chance here because I thought he was kind of cute. <laughs> Buffy's mom and Big Russ Thompson. Yeah, the fact that Buffy's mom was there too. A lot of surprises in this <laughs> one. Um, so the reason I picked him is that even though he, and again, the way he learns his lesson, mm, I don't know. I feel it's a little bit debatable. But I just feel throughout the whole film, he has a short fuse and he's a little bit deceitful in some of the actions that he chooses to take. Like with his buddy? No. Yeah, but then... but. And then... There's a reason for that. I think he has unfair expectations for his kids. Yeah, I, I do too, but I do think he loves them. And I think that the film is about him coming to terms with that, with that, like that he does have unfair expectations of his kids and like... We can't punish someone for needing to grow when they grow by the end of the film. <sighs> okay, yeah. I, I'm all, you know what? I'm kind of, again, not to not toot an old horn, but the Joe Johnston of it all, that story, like most of his stories end up with like a resolution between the dad and the kid. Jumanji? Come on. So like... And, and I like, wonder if that's like a hope that he had with his dad. I'd love, love to get to him, on him on the, the show. show. <laughs> if you are Joe Johnston or know Joe Johnston, please. F- we don't have emails. Dot rad dad. <laughs> Instagram only. We're not looking at Twitter anymore. See, see, like, so here's my, I feel like I've already convinced you, but yeah. if Big Russ is a bad dad, then so is Wayne Selinski to me. Yeah. Because I think he, like Wayne Selinski, Yes, he loves his kids, but he is so singularly focused on himself that, like, he's a bad dad at the start. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I acquiesce. To Sully. To Sully. Okay. Sully, you are big gross gross. You're my least favorite part of Bones and All. Yeah. Kick rocks. You can stick it, Bones and All. Brad uh, Dad? I picked Katia and Maurice Kraft. Who did I? Yes. Of course. From Co-dads. Fi- from Fire Love. I mean, the, their energy is 100% my vibe. Yep. Uh, I, just, I love their passion that they have for the things that they love. I think that they're loving of each other. Mm-hmm. And, and for the work that they do together. And I really love that they found a dynamic that was theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they talked about that dynamic and established that. Beautiful. I think to me, one of the most important things about like a dad energy is like a modeling of what it means to be a like thoughtful, reflective 
independent person, yeah. right? And to me, they encapsulate that together. Mm-hmm. So they know who they are, but they always seek to learn more and like to share that with others and to share that knowledge with the world. And I just, yeah, I just found it really beautiful. When I looked at all of the choices from this week, I mean, usually I'm a little hesitant to, to put people from a documentary, like real people into this, but I was just like, no. Hey, if LeVar can be one. Then Maurice and Katja can. Yeah, they. I mean, I think I'd be really hesitant to put someone into a bad dad role that's a real person, but like yeah. these, Maurice and Katja, I'm like, I want them to be my dads. Like, yeah, i so glad we both said that. Um, so Maurice and Katja Craft. Be our dads. dads. Okay. Rad wreck of the week. Go for it. So it's kind of a dual rad wreck. One for wherever you are in the world and one for if you're local to Edmonton and area. Um, I think, you know, supporting local where you can is really important, especially right now when so many of us, ourselves included, are really financially pressed. Um, so there's a local bookshop called Glass Bookshop, queer owned and operated that curates really, really thoughtful collections of books that recently moved into a physical, permanent physical location right by our favorite ice cream shop, Kind Ice Cream. Um, so first of all, if you're in Edmonton and area, highly recommend Glass Bookshop if you are already planning to buy a book. Um, and they also do delivery. So if you aren't able to go to the physical location for whatever reason, and they're really great at delivery, I usually just get delivery. Um, but in that vein... I got a book from them um, in October called It Came From the Closet, Queer Reflections on Horror, which is an edited essay collection by Joe Valles. Um, And I'm not quite done it yet because I've really been savoring it. Mm. But it is these um, personal essays that also like explore from a, you know, theoretical philosophical lens, um, queerness and horror. Uh, And I am loving it. I've read you several sections from it. Have you liked anyone that I've read you? In particular, uh, I couldn't name a name, but the ones you've read me, it's it's. I read so you one insightful. on Jennifer's so body, one on Jaws. I mean, you know, I love the one on, <laughs> the Jaws. One on Jaws. So it's yeah, really lo- like it. You love the cover art for it. Oh, it's fucking awesome! It's yeah, really yeah. really good. Uh, so that's my dual rad wreck is the book. It came from the closet. Queer reflections and horror, so great. But also, um, Glass Bookshop. If you're in Edmonton or area. Um, or if you're dropping by Edmonton and area, um, or if you're not from Edmonton and area, just like seeking out your your local bookshop, whether that's a secondhand bookshop or a like more locally curated one. We have lots of fantastic ones in Edmonton, like Audrey's Books is another great one. It's just a little farther away from us. So yeah, my rad rack. Lovely. Nice. What a fun week. It was so eclectic. And that's what I love about that's what I love about this show, babe, is that we don't know, like you said, we don't know what we're doing each week. We don't know where it's going. Um it's a roller coaster ride and we we time. love so many different things. What I love too is when I listen to these episodes back, I love how our our voices and our in, our inflections change. Like we got real dour when we were talking <laughs> about come and see. And then right after, honey, I shrunk the kids. Hell yeah. Great twofer. But thank you all for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. And until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs over on Instagram at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Some uh, links for those are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could drop us a rating, a review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. 
Well, that is going to do it for these two shrunken heads this week. So <laughs> until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be bad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.